Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray, as always, joined by someone whose work I've admired for quite some time, uh, Scott Horton, um, who has a new book out called Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Hold my copy here. Also picked up the Kindle version uh, because it's got so <coughs> much notes and stuff to research that it's um, I need something I can just copy and paste. Scott, um, thank you for joining us today. For folks who aren't familiar with you, you have got antiwar.com, Libertarian Institute. Maybe kind of give a quick... 30-second, well, you don't have a 30-second resume, a minute resume of who you are and uh, what you do. Sure. So I'm the uh, founder and the director of the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org, and I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com. I'm the host of Antiwar Radio on Pacifica, KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, and the Scott Horton Show, which is you know, now a podcast uh, for most of its life was a live radio show. And um, I've got more than 5,400 interviews going back to 2003 at scotthorton.org, almost all on foreign policy there. And I'm the author of Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and The Great Ron Paul, which is a collection of the transcripts of my interviews of The Great Ron Paul, uh, about 30 of them going back between uh, 2004 and 2019. And then my brand new one is, uh, you see there, Enough Already. Time to end the war on terrorism. And that's a take on every war since I was a baby in preschool in 1979. <laughs> okay. Um, and so I always talk to the, to my readers and listeners and I say I'm libertarian. I'm not a um I'm not as libertarian as maybe Dave Smith or Tom Woods, but I definitely find most libertarian policies um and, and ideas um is where I landed. Now you 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 are the founder or you write for antiwar.com. Um I don't know if I've ever heard you answer this question directly. What is your general, because we're talking about the wars and the problems with all these crazy wars we're on. What is your general stance on war? Are you a, a pacifist or you or, or just war theory? Where do you come in on the war debate aside from the, the, the problems of the book that we're going to talk about? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a natural rights guy. So mm-hmm. I believe in the right of violent self-defense only. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just basic libertarian principle there. Okay. So you know, that's why we're anti-imperialists with guns, right? It's, it's, it's perfectly fine to use, you know, proportional and immediate force in defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so that same thing, you know, sort of kind of, I mean, assuming for the sake of argument that, hey, we all live in a world of nation states here with these political governments that supposedly exist to be our security forces that we delegate these authorities to, then yes, if someone attacks us, then our government, then I guess could have the legitimate authority to protect us. Sure. But then like you're saying, you have to set that up in a hypothetical where it's completely metaphysical and imaginary in space because that kind of thinking does not apply to any of our conflicts in right. my lifetime. And, you know, okay. So, so go ahead. yeah. So I remember where I was, I'm sure like every listener um, uh, that's alive, um, when 9-11 happened, I was in junior class, Coach Carr's class, and uh, you know him talking about the Twin Towers. I didn't know what the Twin Towers were. And then, of course, the, the what would be my senior, senior teacher the next year come in is like, hey, they got the Pentagon too. We knew what that was, obviously. Um, and, you know, I remember just kind of the, the fear and all this that was tied up with that. Um, you know, consider going into the military afterwards. Was a fan of the Iraq War at the time as being a young neocon Republican growing up in the South, never really thinking through the issues. Um one of the things I appreciate about your work is, is that I've heard you talk about 
and you might have been the first person, I don't know, but you're the most regular person I've heard talk about kind of maybe the conception that what we were pitched about 9-11 versus what bin Laden was saying about 9-11. And just to be clear, the, the, this for the listeners who aren't close, we're not going into um, you know the inside job theories here. <laughs> we're talking about public statements that were made about bin Laden. And I've, I even tweet some of these out. I've, I've, I've researched them because you know, I'm curious you know, where these at. And, and it's fascinating to read what bin Laden was saying in the 90s about you know the problems with the U.S. So maybe set the the paradigm for your perspective and what you talk about in the book. What what was bin Laden saying leading up to 9-11 and, um, and, and what was kind of maybe his motivations compared to what the narrative was that was painted by our government? Sure. Um, well, unlike you say, this isn't a bunch of trutherism. It's also not a justification, of course. Yes. Um, and, right. and people do bring that up. It's a knee-jerk type response, but like the Declaration of Independence says that in favor of the opinions of mankind, we owe them a reasonable explanation here. Okay. I'm a Texan. I don't personally care what any Saudi thinks about anything <laughs> other than what effect does it have on me, what he thinks. Right. And if in fact it's my government that provoked him into anti-American violence that kills American citizens, I need to know that. And all American adults need to know that. We need to be honest with each other about that. And what happened of course, was they just lied. They lied to you and they lied to your family and your whole community, your whole state and this whole country after September 11th. And they, they pretended that they hate us because their sect of radical Islam mandates a war against all innocent and beautiful people, places, and things. And especially if you're from the middle part of North America and you're white and you love Jesus and your daughter, then boy, are you a target. The more you love your daughter, the more they're gonna come kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a bunch of crap. And everybody's seen Rambo 3. Every Southerner that went and joined up the army after September 11th, every single one of them had seen Rambo 3 and therefore knew, they knew these guys used to work for us. And it wasn't the Afghans that did it. It was the Arab Afghans, the guys who had come from across the Middle East in the 1980s to help the Afghans fight against the Soviet Union. The CIA, the Americans under Carter and under Ronald Reagan bankrolled them the whole time. And they did, in fact, help to defeat the Soviet Union. They helped bleed the USSR to bankruptcy and destroy it. And that was what the Reaganites said. And that was what the Bin Ladenites said was, look at what we did with a little bit of CIA money and trust in Allah and an AK-47. We destroyed the godless communist Soviet Union. The entire empire ceased to exist right at the same time their troops were withdrawing from Afghanistan. So bin Laden then targeted, turned his group, which he inherited from a guy named Abdullah Azam in the 1980s. He merged his group with Egyptian Islamic Jihad mm -hmm. and they became Al Qaeda and they targeted their war against the United States. And as you're you know, implying there. They said explicitly through the 1990s over and over and over again why they were attacking us. And what they never said once was we hate your freedom. It, they it, never said that. They yeah. never said we hate your innocence. We hate the fact that you leave us alone. We hate the fact that you let your sisters wear mini skirts to vote in primary elections or serve on grand juries or some crazy thing. That's not what it was. Yeah. 
and and it didn't have anything to do either with Muhammad said that we're supposed to kill all people who are Christians but don't believe in him. He didn't say that. That was never any of it. The only thing Islam had to do with it was Islam says that we are supposed to fight in defense of our land and our people, which is, you know, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. But you think Americans listen to that? Americans fight in defense of their people, too, right? As though as though they follow Muhammad, the prophet, not Jesus, the savior, who said don't. Right. And so what do you expect them to do when Americans are aggressing against them? Yeah, so let and, me let me let me, let me go ahead. Yeah, yeah, because you're 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 on a you're on a good point here. And so let's let's pause. So um, for the for the you gotta go by the book. It, it's just fantastic. And one of the things is that these these articles aren't like obscure blogs. Um, I think either one of the reporters was with the Guardian, um, CNN. Like these are mainstream outlets that Bin Laden was talking about. And now someone might push back and say Bin Laden was lying. It was really about the, all the things our government told us. Of course he could be lying. I mean, that's kind of the caveat with a lot of these conversations. There's a lot of lies, which makes it very right. hard to dissect. Um, one thing that always stuck out to me, and I want to go back to before 9-11 real quick, was I remember after 9-11, and I don't, know if, I don't know if this is true or not. I'm curious if you know, you would hear that narrative that you're saying, and then you'd also hear that Baywatch was also the most watched show around the world. Everyone in the world watched Baywatch. It's the most downloaded or not downloaded show. And they'd be, they'd be like, oh, people in the Middle East watch Baywatch, but they hate the way they hate the way we live. But I was always like, huh, that's weird. I don't know if you ever, if you heard that or not through the time period, but that's what they would say. Like, Baywatch, everybody watch Baywatch. And it's like, then why do they hate us if they're watching right. Baywatch? No, you're so right. Listen, and I don't know about that specific anecdote, yeah. but Everybody loves Americans and in the Middle East, and, and I know this from real sources, man, after World War II, especially, the Middle East, the Arabs loved America and that's the populations. And the reason why is obvious is the same reason we love ourselves too, because we defeated the British. We declared independence and defeated the British empire. Well, guess what, man? Every other group of human beings on the planet wanted to do the same thing. The British have invaded all but like nine nations on earth, okay? This was the greatest thing anyone had ever done. The Americans on the East Coast de defeating King George III and the precedent that that set. And so when the Yanks were coming, they, we were the heroes. They had no reason to hate us at all. They loved our culture. They loved everything about us. We hadn't done anything to them. It, they don't hate us because of who we are. They don't hate us because of who they are. They hate us because of what our government has done to them. It's as simple as that. Again, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan backed these guys. Were they the world's worst satanic terrorists bent on murdering every last man, woman, and child in your neighborhood back when Ronald Reagan was giving them guns and money? Why would he do such a thing? He did such a thing because they weren't our enemies at all. They were the Reds' enemies over there in Afghanistan. And he didn't have any reason to think they'd target us. But the thing is this, especially after Iraq War I, America kept their bases in Saudi Arabia. And they didn't just keep their bases in Saudi Arabia. They used them to launch endless sorties over Iraq, patrolling the no-fly zones and dropping high explosives on people's heads for the entire Clinton administration long, really for the last two years of H.W. Bush and then eight years of Clinton, and then for the first year and a half or two years of W. Bush. 
We're bombing them the whole time from bases in Saudi Arabia and along with our support for Israel. But that was the main thing that drove bin Laden to attack us because it wasn't just his homeland. It was holy land. This is where Mecca and Medina are, the cities where Muhammad came from and the religion of Islam came from. So you think about, for example, what you know about how Texans, and I'm a Texan, you think about how Texans feel about the Alamo, for example, and what we would do, what we wouldn't do if some foreign nation tried to occupy San Antonio with military bases and take our Alamo from us, right? We would slaughter them. But here's the deal. Now, what if Jesus had been born at the Alamo in San Antonio? <laughs> right. Just how badly do you think the Americans would fight for it then? And then imagine, really, Saudi military bases all over San Antonio, where they flew their sorties to carpet bomb Mexico for 12 years straight without stopping for no good reason at all. We would kill them. We've killed upwards of 2 million people in the Middle East in revenge over one attack on our towers and Pentagon 20 years ago that killed 3,000 people, four digits. In one attack where you were right when you remarked at the beginning, it was a big attack. But remember, they had to hijack our planes to even have a weapon to use, right? It was comparable to Pearl Harbor, except for the fact that there was no Japanese empire behind it. It was a stateless band of loser criminal bandits who were out, who were exiled to the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan which is the dictionary definition of exile as far as you can go before you get to Hades, right? These guys were nobodies and nothing. And then the Americans pretended that they had to launch an effort on the order of our effort against Imperial Japan to fight terrorism when they knew good and well, if they had named it the war on Al-Qaeda, they'd have been done by Christmas. And they didn't want that. They wanted to spread the war. They wanted to associate people who had nothing to do with the attack and nothing to do with Al-Qaeda as enemies of the United States to be targeted in the war on terrorism. So let's go back to the no-fly zones. Could you talk about that in the book extensively? I remember growing up hearing about no-fly zone and Clinton at the no-fly zone and where's this no-fly zone at? It's one of those terms that you kind of hear a lot. Why is that, first off, maybe break that down to what it actually means practically and then sure. why is it so important and how has the u.s or, or other allies used that not only in the middle east around the world and, and what are some of the impacts because it is a point of contention as you point the book and so but as an american you go no fly zone okay you just can't fly there so what's the big deal so help us understand that okay good question so here's the deal iraq war one which is in january and february of uh, 1991 right desert storm operation yellow ribbon new country music songs and whatever, uh, operation propaganda campaign. And um, so after Iraq war one, and people can read all about Iraq war one in the book, but in the aftermath of Iraq war one, George HW Bush encouraged the Shiite supermajority of Iraq to rise up in revolt and revolution against Saddam Hussein's Sunni Arab dominated Ba'ath party. Now, there are Christians and Shiites in the Ba'ath Party as well, but it was dominated by Sunni tribes. And Bush said, now is your chance. Shiites in the South and East and Kurds up in the Northeast, now's your chance to rise up and overthrow Saddam Hussein. Go for it. And he said that over Vo Voice of America, 
and the Air Force dropped leaflets over their army divisions and stuff. And the Shiite dominated, you know, army divisions, encouraging them to turn on Saddam. And they did. And they launched a massive uprising. Um, and many of them, you know, they were like getting close to Baghdad, ready to overthrow them. But then the H.W. Bush government stopped and changed their mind and stabbed this uprising in the back. And they let Saddam Hussein keep his attack helicopters for the express purpose of massacring all of these people to death. And, and um, with the help of the MEK cult, they put down this insurrection and killed upwards of 100,000 people and crushed the insurrection. So why did H.W. Bush betray the insurrection that he encouraged in this massive Bay of Pigs style failure and betrayal? The answer is because Iraqi Shiites who'd been living in Iran for 30 years, well, by then 20 years, ever since Jimmy Carter had hired or you know, given the green light to Saddam Hussein to invade Iran, these were the Iraqis who had taken Iran's side and had fled to Iran and fought on Iran's side of the war because they put their Shiite loyalty above their Iraqi nationality or their Arab sect. They put their religious sect higher and chose their loyalty to the new Iranian Shiite revolution. Well, they started coming across the border to lead the uprising against Saddam Hussein. So here's H.W. Bush. He's Ronald Reagan's successor, vice president, successor. His cabinet is all Ronald Reagan's guys, right? Colin Powell and Brent Scowcroft. And they go, well, wait a minute. We're reversing our policy of the last 10 years. We just spent 10 years supporting Saddam Hussein in his effort to contain the Iranian revolution. Now we're importing the Iranian revolution into Iraq. Oops. And so they called it off and they let Saddam massacre all these people, okay? But then they said, oh no, geez, well, that wasn't our fault or anything. Who knows anything about us encouraging them to do it or stabbing them in the back or anything like that? That's not on Peter Jennings. So anyway, Saddam, he's a very bad man and he killed some innocent people. Oh, your audience might remember the movie Three Kings with Marky Mark and George Clooney and Ice Cube, and it's a gold heist. And that movie takes place. The setting is the Shiite uprising against Saddam Hussein in the aftermath of Iraq War I. That's where that story is taking place there. Okay, a little bit of time and place reference for you. Um, and then and Hussein's men are massacring the Shia in the background as the Americans stand by there and watch as part of the movie. Yeah, um, does that. You know, happens in the movie. So then they went, oh no, what a terrible thing that somehow happened. <clears throat> and so then they launched what they call the no-fly zones to protect the Shia and the Kurds from Saddam Hussein. When he was already done putting down the insurrection anyway, it just became an excuse to keep Saddam Hussein bundled up, basically to use him as a whipping boy for the authority of the United Nations and the authority of the United States to do whatever they wanted to pretend that he was still armed with weapons of mass destruction when they knew that he was not, and to pretend that he was going to continue massacring all the Shia and the Kurds for no reason when they weren't in the middle of an insurrection anymore because he'd already put it down. And so this became the hollow excuse for America to stay in Saudi Arabia for 10 years, and that's what brought those towers down. It wasn't bombs in the building. It was American planes and American combat forces stationed in Saudi Arabia, 
killing Iraqis for a decade straight that motivated Al-Qaeda into hijacking those planes and crashing them into those buildings. And then you want to ask me about Israel. That's the second big one is American support. Well, for all the Sunni kings of Arabia, but support for Israel and their legendary war crimes against the Palestinians and the people of Lebanon with American support and money and military aid and diplomatic cover for every bit of it. And so even though Bill Clinton in the 1990s, he supported Al-Qaeda and their friends in Bosnia, he supported Al-Qaeda and their friends in Chechnya, supported Al-Qaeda and their friends in the Kosovo war, they still attacked us anyway because we're still occupying Saudi to bomb Iraq and supporting the Saudi kings. And we're still supporting Israel in their persecution of the Palestinians and the Lebanese. And in fact, um, in Fool's Errand, I have the footnotes for you um, where you can trace it back. Mm -hmm. Where after September 11th, Bill Clinton and two Democratic allies, Tom Lantos in the Senate and Brad Sherman in the House of Representatives, all three of them made statements along the lines of, how could the Muslims attack us after all that we've been doing for them lately? And by the Muslims, they meant Osama bin Laden's men. You know, um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the ringleader of the 9-11 plot, he was too late for Afghanistan in the 80s. He earned his stripes fighting for Bill Clinton in Bosnia. That was how he became an Al-Qaeda commander was his experience there fighting on the side that America was backing in the war in Bosnia. And Bill Clinton, Brad Sherman, and Tom Lantos all said, well, geez, we've done so much for these terrorists lately. We can't believe they're so ungrateful that they would bite the hand that fed them this whole time when they were still occupying Saudi to kill Iraqis and they were still supporting the Israelis. And so, and this is a theme over and over throughout the new book, Enough Already, no matter how much the Republicans and the Democrats spend money backing these terrorists, they never buy their loyalty. They only put us in greater and greater danger. Yeah, and, and, and to me, the thing that's interesting is when I first started um, hearing yourself and others talk about these issues is, and I've talked to people about this, but the kind of blowback concept, Ron Paul obviously made it pretty proper in his campaign run. Um, people was like, well, it can't be that. It's like, okay, well, let's just, Let's just stop for, for a second. Let's just say that you 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 hear what Scott's saying or you read the book. Like, I'm not going to be honest. It's like, well, to, to your point earlier that you made about, imagine if this is how America was set up for Jesus being born in the Alamo and all this stuff. I, I think Americans, um, wherever you come down on these issues about what happened with 9-11, we, we have a hard time conceptualizing the impact of a foreign military being on someone else's land and bombing them. And, you know, your sister who just happened to be in the house that day with a bad guy, she died and your sister's dead, you know, and so you're that that, that causes problems. And so I think Americans um, maybe are, are waking up to that idea. And I think also I'm curious your thoughts on this. Maybe Americans have a hard time real, um, trying to trying to cope with the fact that we are responsible for a lot of in, innocent deaths, even if they were done. If you give them the best motivations possible, um, th there's still a lot of innocent deaths there. And people yeah. will grow to hate you for innocent deaths. And so Americans have to deal with that fact. And um, well, you know what? Listen, I think that's a really great point, man. Um, and, and you know, uh, let me make it a little easier on you and, and on your audience, right? They lie to you about everything, right? about everything. And we're all brought up to believe that our government, look, they're elected by the grownups to do the right thing. 
And the choices they make are the choices that the adults of America voted through their democracy for these guys to do. And it's all right by definition. That's the fourth grade version of civics in this country, that what they do is right because it's a democracy. And the things they say are true because it's a democracy. They, it wouldn't be able to operate any other way. Well, that's a load of crap. Okay, none of that is right, but that's what everybody thinks. Mm. And I'll take another load of responsibility off you here too, which is that if you're the average citizen of Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia or South Carolina or anywhere else in this country, just because you believe George Bush's lies doesn't mean the war is your fault. Exactly. I mean, if you if you personally were the one who shouted your congressman down until he finally gave in and voted for that war, then screw you, okay? But otherwise, if you're just a guy in the neighborhood who bought into this crap, like maybe you can regret that you believed lies, but you don't have to blame yourself for the violence that happened that is really not your responsibility. And the bottom line here, and here's a gift from us libertarians to everybody else, okay? We're all individuals. The government is not the country, okay? The country is a place with a bunch of people on it. The government is just the government. That's it. And the commander-in-chief, he's not our commander-in-chief. He's just the commander-in-chief of the armed forces of the United States. He's the chief executive of the government departments of the general government in D.C. He's not our leader. He's not the monarch. It's not our daddy. I mean, George W. Bush, George Bush's idiot son when George Bush was already an idiot. It's not like we're talking about Ronald Reagan's son here, which who's also a complete boob, but it's not, we're talking about George Bush's son. You know, come on, you don't have to believe in him. And what did Donald Trump say? Donald Trump in 2015 and 16, he goes, you don't have to believe in this crap anymore. And the American right wing, they were like, oh, okay, great. Right, Mitt Romney, look, the Republicans were never gonna win again. As long as they're running Mitt Romney centrists saying, let's double Guantanamo. Whatever George Bush did was great. We need more of that. Mm. Man, they're never gonna win like that. Well, Donald Trump's up against Jeb Bush. So what's he gonna beat him over the head with? He's gonna beat him over the head with Iraq war too, man. <laughs> and Donald, what did Donald Trump say? He goes, this is the worst decision any American president ever made. It was the worst disaster ever. Not just attack in Iraq, but we should have never been over there in the Middle East at all. What a waste. And Donald Trump said, think of the civilian casualties too. All those innocent people, those countries destroyed. You don't have to love Iraqi society, certainly not more than your own hometown. Why would you? Right. But it doesn't mean it's okay to just blow these people apart like this. It's horrible. And that was what Donald Trump said. In fact, I'll bet you that you can find more quotes of Donald Trump referring to the innocent civilian casualties in the Middle East, as he put it on that side of the wars, than Obama and Bush and Clinton and Bush and Reagan combined, probably, saying this is wrong. This is wrong. We're not supposed to be doing this. And what he was doing, this is the same thing Ron Paul did in 08 and 12, but Donald Trump did it even more powerfully. He said, if you're a good right-wing Republican, patriot, southerner, you don't have to believe in this crap. Right. You have to believe in this at all. Well, and, and so let, let's talk about that because I want to talk about, uh, I want to turn, I, I wanted you to unpack some of that. So thank you for that. I want to talk about Yemen in a second. And I'll explain to you why. Um, but 
you know, one of the things, you know, like I said, so I was in junior high, I've been to junior high school when 9-11 happened. So I was probably in early college when Iraq two, as you'd call it, I guess happened. Um, and so, you know, going through this process of, you know, for me, kind of my, my transformation from, you know, kind of born in the South Republican to libertarian was first off kind of realizing that the political talking heads didn't believe in the conservative principles that I believed in. Like that was the first thing, like Sean Handy, Rush Limbaugh, they were going to back the guy they thought would win. They didn't because they would be better conservatives that they wouldn't back. So that was kind of the first awakening. Um, and then you kind of realize well, it's not just your side, it's both sides are kind of doing this. And so it kind of unravels. And then Trump, I think, was a great Trump. Um, we can talk about the presidency if you want to, but the, he kind of exposed for those who wanted to see the hypocrisy, the nastiness of DC with the media, with the politicians, with everyone. No one was able to rise out of the mud. And that's because they're in the same mud that he is. They just coded themselves a little bit differently. Um, so that brings me to Yemen. So I've got two kind of issues that I like to talk about. One is the Uyghurs in China, uh, which is tied to our global war on terror. Um, that's, they use that to propagandize their people to say, we've got to do this because look, these are terrorists. Um, and second is Yemen. One, because I don't understand a lot about Yemen. Two, because no one knows about Yemen. And three, why are we doing anything with Yemen? <laughs> and so for me, yeah. if you want to talk about the war on terror, then you know the Afghan stuff, okay, you can kind of see that. They you know, kind of tit for tat. Iraq, at the time, you, I can understand you being convinced. A lot of people were. The government says it. Now it's like, obviously, we shouldn't be there. Syria is kind of complicated. All this stuff's complicated. To me, Yemen is one for folks who are wanting to end the wars, it's really easy to make because it makes no sense. I, I can't make a case for it. And so uh, I want to focus on that if we could, because for, for our listeners who might be going, we, we need to be over here. We need to be doing this stuff. Yemen, I think, is kind of the one where you've got Trump, you've got Obama, you've got all these guys. And it's like, well, what did Yemen do to us? And so I'll let you start with that. Sure. Let me say two quick things about the Uyghurs. People don't know this maybe, but uh, Eric Margulies, a friend of mine and great reporter, he saw it in the summer of 2001. This was a legacy of the Clinton years. Remember I said Clinton backed the Mujahideen in Bosnia, in Chechnya, and in Kosovo. He was also backing the Uyghurs against China. And Eric Margulies saw, remember, Bill Clinton's government helped install the Taliban in power with Saudi and Pakistan in 1996 and helped to support them up until they finally turned on them, you know, later in, I guess, 99, something like that. Um, but they still, the CIA were still funding training camps for the Uyghurs to be used against China. And then when America invaded Afghanistan, many of these very same Uyghurs were rounded up, called terrorists and held in Guantanamo Bay and tortured. Hmm. When they had been working for the CIA against China just months before. And then the other big news about the Uyghurs that hardly gets talked about is their role in the war in Syria. And when Barack Obama, and this is maybe a whole other show, buddy, but when Barack Obama took al-Qaeda's side in Syria, you have the same Afghanistan effect where Mujahideen came from all over the world to come and help to fight in that, including thousands of Chinese Uyghurs. This is the far western province of China where they're essentially Turkic. They're not Han Chinese. And, and so they're, you know, Turkic and Muslim, and they are, you know, kind of dominated, probably have the right to break away um, from China. But America radicalizes these guys, trains them, arms them to be terrorists and, and uses them in our proxy wars, sometimes directly against China. In this case, the more, the more recent case against Bashar al-Assad in Syria. And then the Americans cry about Chinese, you know, the, the Chinese government's persecution of these people. But 
what really caused the disruption in far western China. I don't know all the details, but I'd be willing to bet it's American intervention and support and training for the most radical of the Uyghurs to destabilize China in the first place is probably what provoked all of the most recent crackdowns and all that. And the fact that they worked for us and then ended up in Guantanamo Day a few days later ought to be enough to, to see who the bad guys are in almost all of these cases. It's the USA causing the fight, you know? And that's certainly the case in Yemen. Um, let me say one more thing about the Uyghurs too, and I'm not the expert on this, but anybody can find this, that all the worst reports about what's happening to the Uyghurs, millions and millions of people in these camps and all this, all of them come from one right-wing think tank in Australia that's financed by Lockheed and Northrop Grumman. And so you can find leftists making that case, but they're right. And so those kind of statistics, you gotta always double check sources on who claims what. You know, everybody cites the UN says that there's Al Qaeda crawling over all, all over Afghanistan right now. Really? Read the UN report. And it says, well, we have information. <laughs> Somebody told us, right? They have no proof whatsoever. All they're doing is regurgitating CIA claims with no reason to believe it at all. But then you'll find a hundred news stories that say the UN says there's Al Qaeda all over Afghanistan. You gotta always check, always check. Now. Yemen, you want me to do Yemen? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I'd say yes. So just to reset before we go to Yemen, just the point with the yep. Uyghurs, my point with the Uyghurs would be is whatever the, the backstory is, there is obviously we, we know what China does to people who to, to dissidents. And so um, sure. from my standpoint, obviously not calling for an invasion to to, to free the Uyghurs. Um, um what I'm calling for and what I've kind of said same thing with Yemen is we need people talking about it because totalitarian governments, the one thing they don't want you to do is talk about the issues they don't want you to talk about. And so um whether it's the the Uyghurs or what's happening or the folks in Yemen, um uh, or or you know wherever. So anyways, so yeah, so Yemen. So obviously Yemen is over there by Saudi Arabia, uh, but most Americans don't know anything about it beyond that. So what's going on? Why why are we selling weapons? And if you remember, one thing that I, I thought never got a lot of headlines, Trump gave um, one of his State of the Unions, and the wife of a Navy SEAL member was there. And it caused a big stir. And what caused a stir was him calling attention to it. But what got left was, I'm pretty sure the SEAL that was killed was killed in Yemen on a, on a mission. So um, we do have troops there, despite... Some people don't think that. So I'll, I'll let you kind of set the table. You, you're the expert here, not me. So go ahead. Sure. Okay. So I'll try to do this as fast as I can. Everybody picture the Arabian Peninsula. It's a big rectangle. It's tilted toward the Northwest. We're talking about the very Southwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula. Okay. Right across from Somalia, across the gates of the Red Sea there. Okay. South of Saudi, West of Oman. All right. Now, it used to be north and south, Yemen divided in half. The Reds controlled the south. The country was united when the Soviet Union fell apart uh, by a dictator named Saleh in the capital city, Sana, which, oh, by the way, just for everybody, and you're going to need to picture north, south, and the middle of the country while I'm talking here. Forget the east. The east is almost all desert and beside the point. We're talking about the western part of the country when we say north, south, and middle, okay? So Sana, Sana'a, is the capital city right around in the middle, okay? It's, it was led by a dictator who united the country. His name was Abdullah Saleh. And H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, W. Bush, and Obama all backed him, okay? For 30 years, he was backed by the U.S. Now, in 2009, Obama comes into power. Oh, I should backtrack. AQAP, 
Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. These are real ass Al-Qaeda terrorists. This isn't like pretending that Al-Shabaab and Somalia really are international terrorists. These are the guys that bombed the USS Cole. They helped coordinate the September 11th attack. They tried to bomb, do the underpants bombing and pull up a train over, uh, a, pardon me, a plane over Detroit um, on Christmas day, 2009. They did the printer package plot that luckily failed uh, another bomb uh, on a plane plot. And they did the Charlie Hebdo attack in Paris, France. And I think they were also implicated in the massacre of the Eagles of Death Metal concert in, in Paris as well in the middle of this um, uh, last decade. Okay, so they are real ass dangerous Al-Qaeda enemies of the United States of the America who have shed civilian blood, including, as I said, participated in uh, planning and organizing the September 11th attack. Okay. So Obama comes into power and says, forget regime change for a minute anyway, <laughs> forget regime change against guys like Saddam Hussein. I want to really focus on Al-Qaeda. And he tells the CIA gloves off in Yemen and Pakistan. We're going to launch massive drone wars and you guys are going to hunt down the last leaders of real Al-Qaeda. We're going to make real headway here. Bush was just using it as a bait and switch. I really want to kill these guys. So the CIA says, hell yeah, let's do it. And they launched a massive drone war in starting toward the end of 2009, preceding the underpants bombing of Christmas Day um, by a couple of months and probably provoking it. But anyway, um, so they, they waged this massive drone war. Now this is, Al-Qaeda is down in the south of the country and they don't control the, the big city of Aden, which is where the coal was bombed, is under the control of a socialist group, the Southern Transitional Council types who lean left. But to the little bit to the east of them, there's some, some pretty bad Al-Qaeda guys. So Obama and the CIA's drone war just grows them more and more powerful. The more people they bomb, they call it a surgical strike, right, with a scalpel of a Reaper drone. Well, compared to the 3rd Infantry Division, you could say a drone strike is minimal, okay, compared to sending in the whole Marine Corps like Bush did in Iraq War II, right? But there's nothing surgical about a 500-pound bomb for the people who are on the ground. It means... Assuming they target a bad guy at all and even get that right, as you said, there's still kill his innocent sister who happens to be in the same house the same day. So it's all counterproductive. It only makes Al-Qaeda more and more powerful. Okay. Now, in order to have this war, Obama had to bribe the dictator Saleh with a bunch of money and guns to let us do the drone war in the South. Well, Saleh takes the money and guns and he launches multiple attacks against a group of Zaidi Shiites in the north called the Houthis, a political faction. He attacks them six times and they win each time. And just like America's war against AQAP in the south, Saleh's war against the Houthis in the north is counterproductive and only grows his enemy larger and larger the whole time. And he's playing a double game, of course, and helping back Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood against the Houthis. And in fact, he's playing a triple game because he was even backing the Houthis against his own military and his own friends in Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood in order to wear them out too. We think American politics is backstabby. Holy crap, these guys. Okay, so now then what happens is the Arab Spring revolts break out in 2011. And all factions descend on the capital city and say they want rid of their dictator. They're sick and tired of 30 years to Saleh. Okay, so somebody tries to assassinate him. He's wounded. He's got to go to Saudi Arabia for medical treatment. 
At that point, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, swoops in and in conspiracy with the Saudis, oust Saleh from power in a soft coup and replace him with his vice president, a guy named Mansour Hadi. Well, get this, instead of retiring to his farm to a quiet life of study, Saleh takes half his army or more with him and he goes and joins the Houthis in the north. It turns out he's a Zaidi Shia just like them. And so now his old enemies that he attacked six times, who pushed his forces back six times, now he's their ally. And he's got like half or two thirds of the army came with him to join forces with them. So then Hadi, the new president that Hillary put in, get this, and everybody put this in your Google images and double check me, you'll laugh. Search for Hadi ballot in Google images and you'll see there's one face and one guy on the ballot, one oval to fill in and no one else to vote for. And that was the election they held and Hillary Clinton called it the advent of democracy. And they promised to hold new elections in two years or three years and he put that off and he never even held new elections. He was, and unlike Sala, he didn't have consolidated political support. You're not finding it? No, no yeah, I was, I was trying to pull it up here. Oh, is it right. there? Yeah, let's see if I can pull it up. Uh... This is meant to be audio, but I might put it, put it on the screen there. Yeah. Let's see um, here. Um, let's see here. Is it? Let's see here. Share. There we go. This is it right here. Oh, let me. Sorry. This is it right here. Yeah, there it is. That's the guy. Yeah. So here, here's what it reads for the listeners. It says, uh, "This is from NPR. This is from 2012. Yemen election. One person, one vote, one candidate." Millions of people in Yemen turned out to vote Tuesday in an unusual presidential election. <laughs> there was only one candidate and only one way to vote. Yes. <laughs> I, this is this is just like when I was a kid. Um, if you could minimize that, it's making me glow blue oh, over here. I'm sorry. Um, no, we, uh, no, no problem. Um, when go. I was a kid, this is what my dad taught me about the communists. Oh, yeah, they have elections. There's only one party on the ballot, though. <laughs> so it kind of doesn't matter. You know, that's the way America does business now. So this didn't last. The guy had no support and it all skip the details, but he was a really lousy uh, dictator as far as being a dictator and had uh, very little support. And so the Houthis and uh, Salah, their new ally, marched on the capital city and sacked it and took it over at the end of 2014. And they ran Salah off down to the port city of Aden. And then from there, they even chased him out of there to Saudi Arabia, where he sits under house arrest in a hotel in Riyadh to this day. And um, I almost said something, but I'm skipping ahead. So it's the end of it's the end of December 2014, and then January, beginning of 2015. Our new Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, was then the commander of Central Command. Well, they struck up a deal with the Houthis. Hey, Houthis, you guys like killing Al-Qaeda, right? And the Houthis were like, yeah, we like killing Al-Qaeda. They sure like killing us. So, yeah. So, uh, General Austin was giving them intelligence to use to kill Al-Qaeda. We know that from the Wall Street Journal, January 28, 2015. And we know it also from Barbara Slavin in Al Monitor, wrote up a report about how General Michael Vickers, the Deputy Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, came to the Atlantic Council and gave a big presentation and talked all about it. America has aligned with the new government in Sana and we're Sana, and we're using them to kill Al-Qaeda guys. Well, then, Ryan, two months later, Barack Obama stabbed the Houthis in the back and he took Al-Qaeda's side against them. 
because that's what the new deputy crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia wanted. And go ahead. I'll just say real quick, I did find the quote for those, I'll put this in the thing, <laughs> Hillary Clinton, this is from CNN 2012, in a statement, U.S. Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton congratulated the people of Yemen on today's, unquote, today's successful presidential election, calling it, quote, another important step in their demo, uh, democratic transition process. That is from CNN talking about the election. <laughs> I'm telling you, I couldn't make this stuff up for you if I was trying, Ryan. No, I, never. I, didn't, I know you're not. I just have, I, I, just, I just wanted to look it up to see if I was just curious. To see. And just to be clear, it, it says the second paragraph from CNN says with the election, was, while the election was short on candidates, the only person on the ballot was Vice President Hadi, who became the acting president. Like, so it's like short on candidates. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hey, look, I'm sorry, Scott. Hey, I just too much. As, as long as we're having fun, try this. Type in CNN, Yemen, MRAP. You know, M-R-A-P, the Armored Personnel Carriers, Mine Resistant Armored Personnel Carriers. Okay. And you'll see that the story is that the United Arab Emirates has been giving MRAP armored personnel carriers, American armored personnel carriers to Al-Qaeda. Yeah, sold who to are Allah. using them Walked in battle. Yeah, there it is. So this is not like when ISIS sacked Western Iraq and stole American equipment from military bases that Bush and Obama had left behind for the Iraqi army. This is American military equipment that America gave to UAE, that UAE gave to their allies our allies, mm. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, in the fight against their enemies, the Houthis. And I'll tell you what, that General Austin, our new Secretary of Defense, was reportedly, and from a source that I really trust, Mark Perry, a great Pentagon reporter, he was reportedly beside himself over this. Now, he's a good imperialist and clicked his heels and obeyed his orders, and did stab the Houthis in the back and take Al-Qaeda's side against them when that's what Obama said to do. But Mark Perry, you know, this was the guy who was back in the Houthis. This was the guy who was using the Houthis to kill Al-Qaeda. And he was really mad. And in Mark Perry's new piece at Foreign Policy, and I interviewed him about it, he says that General Austin was so mad, he wanted to write a letter to Obama denouncing it and demanding that Obama stop it. And then his friends and you know colleagues in the military talked him out of it and said, don't do it. And so he went along and did this whole thing anyway. But Mark Perry back then, you can check, uh, it's in an Al Jazeera piece um, from March of 2005, where Mark Perry talked to um, a great Yemen expert named Michael Horton, who's no relation to me. He's from the Jamestown Foundation, which is a pretty conservative think tank and are experts in terrorism and stuff. And this guy is a real ass Yemen expert. I've talked with him myself, uh, you know, off the record, not in interviews, but a couple of times. Um, and he told Mark Perry this quote, and this came from something John McCain had tweeted before. And this was of course true. And it was also all John McCain's fault. So screw him. But John McCain had tweeted, are we Iran's air force in Iraq? Guess what? We've been Iran's Air Force in Iraq since 2003, pal, all because of him, so he could shut up. But anyway, Michael Horton said, John McCain complains that we're Iran's Air Force in Iraq. Well, we're Al-Qaeda's Air Force in Yemen. Mm. And that was from the very beginning of the war. And now here's the real deal. Two things. The war, you mentioned just war theory. One mm -hmm. of the most important parts of just war theory. It's like step one. 
is the goals have to be achievable. Yeah. Okay. The goal here is to put Hadi back on the throne. Hadi is still hiding in a in a hotel in Riyadh. Our media and government continue to call his government the official government of Yemen, the internationally recognized government of Yemen. Government forces this, government forces that. You might think that there was that they were the government of the country. <laughs> if you read the newspaper today, if you if any of your you or your your um, viewers type in Houthi rebels into Google News you'll get every single result for Houthis. You can't find a reference to the Houthis where they're not called rebels. But Ryan, they seized the capital city six years ago. <laughs> they're not rebels. If they're rebels, then doesn't that sound, if, if Hadi is the government and the Houthis are the rebels, doesn't it sound like he still controls the capital and they're on the outside of it? Well, that was six years ago, six years ago. And right. they cannot replace him. They cannot drive the Houthis out of power. They cannot put Hadi back on the throne. And yet the war continues anyway. And the war is a barbarian medieval siege campaign against the entire civilian population of the country. We're not talking about U.S. Air Force bragging supposedly about their surgical strikes and hitting only the bad guys here. They're deliberately targeting the water, the electricity, the sewage, all the trucks, the farms, the grain silos, the everything, every prominent business in town, the potato chip factory, everything that they can, any bit of significant commerce and especially food and water and health resources. They bomb the hospitals. We got the worst cholera outbreak in modern history, even worse than what H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton caused in Iraq under the sanctions against Iraq in the 1990s. And what does America and Saudi do? We bomb the cholera hospitals. Okay, there's yeah. at least 100,000 dead. And I swear to you, there's no question that when this thing is over and they count the excess death rate, there's going to be better than 500,000 innocent civilians killed in this fucking satanic war. So let's clear this up because this is okay. We do. I know we had, like I said, Trump mentioned. State of Union, the, the SEAL's wife that was dead, he died in Yemen. Um, and then we've been selling the Saudis' weapons. The, are the Saudis the main ones that are, are – so how much is our direct involvement, not not from weapon sales, we can talk about that, right. but like how much is our actual planes or, or troops versus how much is the Saudis or someone else? Right. Okay, so I'm glad you brought that back up. So when he's talking about special operations forces there, he's talking about missions against al-Qaeda, which are still going on, even though we're fighting for them. Mm -hmm. We're still send special operations against them and do drone strikes against them from time to time. But, you know, I interviewed this uh, Yemeni journalist named Nasser Arbi from Sana'a, and he just laughs about this. The war against al-Qaeda, are you kidding me? They just joined the UAE's army. And then they're safe. We're, not, we're backing the UAE and their al-Qaeda army in Yemen. So any limited missions like Trump's talking about there, sending Delta or SEALs, to hit one or two high value targets or do a drone strike here or there, that amounts to window dressing when the entire war, remember the drone war against them was already counterproductive. Now, what do you think about the war for them? Right. The war that, you know, they actually seized like seven towns in 2015 and 16, they seized a major city called Makala. They seized military bases and all their armories and magazines, stole all of their stuff. 
they ruled entire tax spaces and you know made tons of money i don't know hundreds of millions of dollars billions of dollars and it was only politics that the americans negotiated with the uae listen uae this al-qaeda thing is starting to be bad public relations so bring them into your army so we can stop calling them make uap and start calling them the uae's army and the uae did it the uae didn't fight them and defeat them the uae hired them all and you can read it. I mean, if you know where to look, you can read it in Reuters. It's right there for you. You know, you, but you got to understand the significance when you see the story of what it really means. But that's the deal is we're fighting on their side all along. Then. Okay. So a couple questions and we'll wrap up this. Um, so. I, um, oh, and I'm sorry, because you asked me, Ryan, I'm sorry to interrupt. But you what? asked me specifically about the extent of America's yes. role here. Yes. Okay. So this is what Obama called leading from behind right where it's all somebody else's fault not ours except that's bullshit because america is the world empire and saudi arabia is our client state they're flying our f-15s and british typhoons they're dropping american and british bombs they have american active duty military and spies as well as civilian contractor mercenaries doing all the intelligence all the logistics all of the care and feeding and maintenance on their planes. These are all Boeing and BAE contractors. These princelings don't wash their own F-15s, man. This is all Westerners who handle every bit of this for them. And it's America's Navy that rules the seven seas. And so when the Saudis have a blockade against the Yemenis, of course, it's dependent on the American Navy to help them enforce it. And so, um, and it is, again, a, a deliberate siege campaign. So that means that our Navy, just its presence, not that they have to do any intercepting, but just their presence means that nobody is selling these people food. Yeah. We've shut down international trade, and so they're starving to death. So let me ask you this. So if someone's listening and they're kind of on the fence, like, ah, I don't know, because you know, obviously you are an expert here and you've got all this kind of back of hand, they still want to kind of trust and think that we should be over there. Um, the question that, that when I was getting these debates with my friends, at least is like, well, what do you want us to do? Like leave tomorrow? I'm like, oh yeah, because staying is not going to do anything. And I don't, I don't think no matter how we try to, if we tried to slowly roll it out, um, Hey, you know, it, that's not going to work. So just rip the bandaid off Mia Copa. I'm not for government spending, but cut them some checks. I don't know. Just get out of there and let, let them start fixing their own, uh, fixing the problems that we've created. Um, what is your solution here to these issues? Are you saying rip it off or yeah, is there- no, I agree with you. Listen, there is no solution, right? And, and it's probably the worst part of, of um, the argument because it's unsatisfying for people yeah. that what we have to do is just call it off. But again, America started it, okay? It, your audience leans right. Everybody, Bill Clinton started it, okay? <laughs> Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. It's all their fault. Well, that, you that, know, forget the people you like. Yeah, we're, we're quick. Cut you off. Stop. We didn't talk about this. I, we're out of time. But I, I've heard you talk extensively. You're an equal opportunity hater. You're not, <laughs> you know. Yeah, you, I'm just you, being you friendly, you know. Yeah, go listen to Part of the Problem podcast. Uh, you and Dave Smith just did a three, four-part series on Trump's legacy. So um, you're very hard on Trump there. I've heard you criticize Obama. I've heard you criticize Bush, Bush. I've heard you criticize, I've heard you criticize them all. So I will say that. It's all Jimmy Carter who, who got us into this mess. You know, he's supposedly the nicest one of them. This is all his fault. And I hate Bill Clinton with a burning fire like no one can understand. <laughs> I'm okay? just saying, so yeah. No so, question about that. 
right or that's the beautiful thing about being libertarian is that we get to criticize everyone <laughs> that's right that's right yeah it's it, it not only do are our principles right but we're not partisans yeah so when people read the book you'll see i don't pull any punches or favor or extra condemnation for any president or any secretary of state they all did the wrong thing mostly for the wrong reasons and there's no partisan favoritism in there whatsoever that anyone can find because it just doesn't exist in me. And, and frankly, I've been a George Carlinian from such a young age that I've never been a partisan. I've never been a liberal or a conservative, a Democrat or a Republican in my whole life. You know, I was uh, just anti everything and, and then libertarian from the time I was in high school. So I'm not even a re uh, recovering bad guy on any of this stuff. I just <laughs> called it as I saw it all along. Okay, so we'll we'll close off with this discussion. So one of the things that I've as I've listened to you from afar um, and admire your work is, uh, and I have the same problem too. So I'm curious how you handle. It. I'll hear you. There's a story that you've I've heard you talk about. And I can't remember. Uh, John Kerry is in a meeting and he says something about I'm gonna do something, and you kind of use that to say, well, this shows his motivation. And then you you like me or you libertarian say these guys are all liars. My question to you is, how do you balance that? Because it's just as likely that John Kerry could be lying in that moment. And we libertarians use that to justify, well, this is why they did that, is he was lying the other statement. So how do you, because this is, these are, listen, geopolitics, there, there's a very simple side. We, there's a lot of simple solutions, but as you get into the, the nuts and bolts, the further down the bunny hole you get, it's very complex. How do you That's balance a great question. It? Yeah. How do you yeah. balance it out? So help me out with your, with yeah. your So, yeah, I mean, everything is all gray in context, and it's the the Kerry quote that you're talking about, this is not John Kerry in front of his priest or John Kerry in front of St. Peter, right? This is John Kerry talking to a group of Syrian rebels, and this is what he's choosing to tell them. So you take that from what it's worth. Who is he? Well, he's America's Secretary of State. What's the context? These Syrian dissidents, they, he's meeting with them in Britain, mm -hmm. and they're saying to him, gimme, gimme, gimme. And he and his aide are saying to them, hey, look, pal, sorry, okay? That's the context of what is happening in the discussion. He doesn't know he's being recorded. And what he says is, and I'll get to your larger question too, but this is a great anecdote, okay? So- And I, I use a John Kerry because I assume when he speaks, he lies. So I'm with yeah. you when he's speaking, he's lying. So yeah. But it, yeah, I mean, he's such a dishonest guy, but he's also, he's up to his eyeballs in every bit of all of these policies. And he's an extremely knowledgeable person, an extremely involved person. He's, he's no dummy. His words have weight, regardless of exactly how you take them, okay? So in this anecdote, what's happening is he and his buddy are explaining to them why you can't have any more guns. And this is in 2000, I think 16, I'm almost certain it's 16, okay? So this is after the rush, this is after the Islamic State has risen in Syria and Iraq. This is after the Russians have finally intervened in the fall of 2015 to start bombing the hell out of the CIA's Al-Qaeda terrorists on the ground there. And I know we haven't done Syria in this episode, but we're, we're catching on. This, this anecdote takes place at the tail end of America's Syrian misadventure there. Okay, so Kerry says to them, listen, guys, we dumped a bunch of money and guns in there, a ton of money and guns. You can't say there's not enough money and guns, okay? We, we did all that. But the problem is money and guns are kind of fungible. 
and they make their way around to even other sides. And then also the more we put in, the more other countries put in on the other side, meaning Iran and Russia are doing more to help arm Assad and prevent, you know, to help bolster him in the fight on the other side. So it's, just, it's not a zero sum game where we give you enough weapons and then you win. We give you enough weapons, the Russians and Iranians give them even more weapons and we're still at a stalemate, only there's more death. And then he says, but look, we saw the rise of ISIS and we thought we could manage. We thought we could use them to create pressure on Bashar al-Assad to force him to resign from power. But that didn't work because you know what happened? Assad went to Putin and said, Putin, please save me. And so Russia came and Russia's Air Force started bombing the living crap out of all of our terrorists on the ground. I mean, our wonderful moderate rebels. And so the game is up, folks. I'm sorry. We did everything we could for you. We saw the rise of ISIS. We thought we could use that to force Assad from power. It didn't work. So now the real context, right, is he's not admitting to you and me, Ryan, that we saw the rise of ISIS and we thought we could manage, right? He's explaining to rebels why he has to tell them no. He's explaining to them why we did all for you that we can, but now we have to wind it all down. And so it's out of context that we are hearing Kerry admit to them that we saw the rise of ISIS and brackets continued pouring in money and guns to their side of the civil war because we thought we could use them to pressure Assad to leave, but it didn't work. So now that's the money quote. And that's the one where the anti-Syria interventionists go, see, look, they admit what they did here, right? And you can take his words as honest in the sense because he's using them to bolster another argument to people who were in on it with him. Right. He's talking. It's not like he's defending himself from a Republican congressman accusing him of doing too much or accusing him of doing not enough or whatever. The context here is Syrian rebels. So, in other words, it's a complicated mess to your larger question. It's a complicated mess. How do you decide? How do you decide what's meaningful and what you take to the bank? Here's another one. For example, I just told you Google CNN. MRAPs and Yemen. Right. And you'll see where the UAE is giving them to Al Qaeda guys. Well, how do we know that that's right? The real, the, the obvious quick answer is we know it's right because there's no way in the world CNN would have made that up. <laughs> now, CNN makes up lies all day, but that's not the direction that their lies lean. Their lies lean for intervention. Their lies are anonymous sources that the CIA made up a bunch of BS and told us to tell you that Donald Trump's in it with Putin at the Kremlin and a P-tape and a blah, 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 right? When CNN is telling you the kind of thing that they are not supposed to be telling you, and it's pretty obvious that that's what's going on here, that probably when CNN published the report, that their reporter won an argument with their editor and got the damn thing published. And that probably at Langley and at the Pentagon, they're grinding their teeth and angry and mad and wish this story hadn't gotten out. Then that's, yeah, more probably more likely to be true. The lawyers call this against interest. Your honor, this liar said a thing. 
But in this case, we should believe him because it's essentially an admission that he, he's incriminating himself. And so the fact that he's a liar doesn't acquit him. The fact that he's a liar means that, yeah, he's a criminal and we should believe him when he admits it, okay? And so that's, and but you have to take each one at a time. I, I tell young people, you have to read the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and you have to hate them. And you have to know <laughs> that they hate you. Out to get you. They're lying to you. They're lying to your mama. They're trying to take advantage of you. They have a vendetta against you. And so you have to have a vendetta against them too. And then but you have to read them because there's no one in the world that has access to what in the hell is going on around here, true or false or close in the narrative than the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. You can't do without them. You have to have them. You have to read them, but you have to be wise. And you have to know that, come on, the CIA says that this or that horrible thing happened, but they can't quite prove it, but believe them so that they can do something horrible based on it tomorrow. Yeah, I think you can pretty much see through stuff like that. Yeah. No, but I, then I, when they go, you know, actually, I'll give you a great example. Georgia, thinking they had American support, started a war against Russia in August of 2008. Hmm. That's not the Georgia between Florida and South Carolina, but the one over there between the Black and Caspian oh, Sea <laughs> in the Southern Caucasus Mountains, right? Well, the whole media pretended to believe that Russia started that war until November. Now, the British media, all the European media told the truth at the time when the war started. So everybody who wasn't a damn liar knew about it and was talking about the truth about it. But in all of official American media, they said that the Russians started the war. But then in November, the New York Times ran a piece that basically the entire piece was a correction that said, actually, Georgia started the war, not Russia. Well, you can take that to the bank. That's the truth, because that's them admitting that they were lying before when they were accusing the Russians of doing a thing that they didn't do, right? So how do you weigh this? They were lying before they're telling the truth now. That's how easy, right? You just have to use your noggin, that's all. And you have to suspect them. And you have to know that the CIA's job is to make you believe things that aren't true so that you will support things that are wrong. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're past time, so I'm, I'm keep this short. I think that, you know, for I'm 35, be 36 this year, folks of my generation having these discussions is very easy. People are like, oh, yeah, of course they lie. Like, oh, my gosh, you know, my parents' generation is a lot tougher because they didn't grow up um, kind of aware of, you know, how things operate. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I like to point to um, Operation Midnight climax or whatever the the the, the um, lsd experiment in san francisco they ran in like the 60s you know it's like this has been going on for a while you I, i'm sympathetic you couldn't expose this stuff back then and i don't want to you know i don't want to go off into crazy land conspiracy theory i just like to say there there's plenty of cons conspiracies quote unquote <laughs> that we can look to and thankfully scott um we have stuff like GameStop happening where it's out in the open anyone right can see it like they hate you to your point they hate you. They literally hate you and don't want you to make money. Well, okay, they'll let you make money as long as it doesn't cost them money, or you know, the long as the tax laws make you keep your IRA uh, in, in invest in the stock market so they can trade on that and make money off that and have free money to operate off of. They they love you then, but when you make a buck, they they're against you. So I, I agree. Yep. I appreciate your work. I appreciate uh, getting listen to you and your time. You're obviously um, a very busy person. Thank you for the book. Um, Thank you for writing the book um, and look forward to following your work in the future. 
where should folks obviously we're directing to the book antiwar.com libertarian institute anywhere else uh that's it scotthorton.org Scott um, if you want the show i got uh 5400 interviews going back to 2003 for you there okay and then yeah libertarianinstitute.org and i'm on twitter now again um yeah. back on my virtual crank habit here on twitter at scott horton show okay well it is good to get you on and uh thank you so much for all that you do for the libertarian movement and the uh just the foreign policy stuff it's, it's fantastic absolutely thank you for having me ryan really great to talk to you